The previous mission discussed a man who divorces his wife because she made a neder, or he divorces his wife because rumors come and spread that she committed adultery, and what the law is regarding remarrying her. This Mishnah talks about a person who hamaitis ishtamishim islanis, one who divorces his wife because he suspects her of being an islanis. An islanis is a woman who is incapable of having children. Rabbi Huda says it is forbidden to remarry her because we are concerned that she, once she is divorced from this man, will go and marry somebody else and she'll end up having children from that other man and the husband will come back to her and say, had I known that you were able to have children, I would never have divorced you. And it will appear like the divorce was invalid and that she was forbidden to marry this other man and that the children who she did give birth to from this other man are mamzerim children born from illegal relations who are forbidden to marry into regular Jewish people. And so to avoid such a situation, the Rabbana said that when you divorce a woman and you say that the reason is because she's an islandess, you should know that it's a full divorce and that you won't be able to remarry her later on. And that way, whatever claim he might make in the future, since he was told at the time of the divorce that he is certainly not able to remarry her and that he is divorcing her fully, whether she's an islandess or not, and that way he won't be able to have any claim later on. On the other hand, the Chachom say it is permitted to remarry her, because at the end of the day, this wasn't a condition. You didn't say I'm divorcing her on condition that she's an islandess. The reason why you divorced her is because she's an islandess, but it wasn't made as part of a condition of the divorce, and therefore whatever claim he's going to make in the future is irrelevant. The divorce was a full divorce, and we're not concerned either that it will appear like it wasn't a full divorce, so Mary's not concerned about that. Since at the end of the day, the divorce is considered to be a real divorce, so he won't have a claim, and therefore he is permitted to remarry her. Now what happens if Nisus Laacher, after he divorced her and he told her that the reason why he's divorcing her is because she's an islandess, she went and married somebody else, and she had children from this other man. So clearly she's not really an islandess. And the halacha is that a woman, in general, when she's divorced or widowed, she receives her kasuba, a certain amount of money from the husband, quite a large amount of money. But an islandess does not receive a kasuba. But now that she has children, she comes back to the husband and says, Ah, you see, I'm not an islandess, and therefore I am entitled to the kasuba. Amr Behuda Behuda says, We tell her, your silence in this situation will be better for you than your speech. Meaning, if he it does indeed need to pay you the kasuba, then he will now have a claim that had I known that I would have to pay your kasuba, I would not have divorced you. And here this is a real claim, because the claim is not regarding whether she was an islandess or not. It's regarding this point of whether he had to pay the kasuba or not. Here this is a real claim that can indeed cancel and retroactively show that the divorce wasn't a real divorce, if he does indeed have to pay now. Well, say, had I known that I would have to pay, I wouldn't have divorced you. And therefore we tell her that it's better that you don't claim the kasuba and you don't make him pay it, because otherwise it will come out that the children which you have now from this new marriage are mamzerim. Right, Mishnah Tetz. Hamochus atzmeves bonav legoi, one who sells himself and his children to a non-Jew as slaves, let's say he was very hard of money, so he sold himself and his children to a non-Jew. As slaves, says the Mishnah, in Pluton Oisai, other people should not ransom and redeem him, they shouldn't pay the non-Jew in order to free them. And the Gemara explains that really they should, but we're talking about a case where this person's done it three times already. So now we see that whenever he needs some money, he sells himself in order that people will free him. 
So he hasn't got the right to do that so many times. So once he's done it three times, then we don't redeem and we don't pay money in order to free them. However, we would still free, we would pay money in order to free his children after their father dies. Because otherwise, since they're young children, living with a non-Jew, there's a high chance of them assimilating and following the practices of that non-Jew without their father anymore to look over them. Alright, now the parak ends off with one last case of Tikkun Oilam. Hamoicher esodehu l'goi. One who, send, one who sells his field in Eretz Yisrael to a non-Jew. Yisrael. Some Mishnahis have different versions over here. We're going to read the version which the Rambam has, that he sold the field to a non-Jew, and Yisrael. a Jew went and bought the field from the non-Jew. The Mishnah says, The one who bought the field is obligated to bring Bikurim. Bikurim is the gift of the first fruit which ripen in the field. It's an obligation to bring them to the Besamekdash, give them to the Kranim. And the Mishnah says that this is when they take an oilam. Because of taken oilam, to fix something, they decreed something because of a particular concern, which we'll explain in the moment. But the truth is, the Gemara explains that actually Midoyaisa, the one who buys the field, is obligated to bring the Bikurim. So why does the Mishnah say it's Tikkun Oilam? The answer is that according to our Mishnah at least, a non-Jew who owns land in Eretz Israel, that land is still considered to be holy, just like any land owned by a Jew, and produce coming from that land is still obligated in tithes and all of the various gifts which apply to the field of a Jew in Eretz Israel. However, because of that, people began selling land to non-Jews in Eretz Israel, and that is considered to be a bad thing. The sanctity of the land is possibly affected slightly, and certainly Jews should be the ones who own the land in Eretz Israel. But since people saw that it would still be obligated in tithes, they thought there was nothing wrong with selling the land to non-Jews. And therefore the Rabbonim said that in the scenario which we have in our Mishnah now, the person who buys the field, since the non-Jew owned the field, and the non-Jew owned it whilst at the stage of the field where the fruit ripened. So Rabbonim said that the person who buys the field is exempt from Bikurim. And that way people would realize that really the sanctity of the field does go down when you sell it to a non-Jew. However, this led to people thinking that once you sell a field to a non-Jew in Eretz Yisrael, it's already too late, and the entire sanctity is gone, and even if you buy the field, still you're exempt from the Kurim. So it appears as if the entire sanctity is gone, so that meant that people wouldn't try and buy fields from non-Jews. They would think, ah, once non-Jew has it, there's no reason to try and regain possession of that land by buying it from him. Now that's not true. It's just that the obligation of Bikurim, they said, would be dependent on when exactly the ripening happened. But that's what people thought, and therefore, because of Tikkun Oilam, as it were, in order to encourage people to buy back um, fields from non-Jews in Eretz Israel, they got rid of their original decree and returned the law to the law which is Midoraisa, that the person who buys the field from the non-Jew is obligated in Bikurim. And that's how the Mishnah says it's Midnetik and Oilam, because there are really two stages of the Midyabonon decree, which led back to the original Midyaraisa law. This parak is a continuation of the subject of Tikkun Oilam. Many more examples, again, not necessarily related to Gitin, but examples of things which the Rabbonon instituted in order to avoid particularly big concerns. Now, if somebody owes somebody money, but he's not able to repay in money. However, he owns property. The person who is owed the money has the right to collect the debt from his property, from his land. 
Now, what happens if the person happens to own a lot of land and some of it is better quality, some of it is worse quality? You could have a field which is relatively small, but it's very good quality, and it might be worth the same amount as a much larger field which is worse quality. Now, in general, people would prefer a smaller field which is better quality. And this mission discusses three types of people who are owed money for different reasons. And if they are collecting money, f- if they are collecting their debt from land, then which land, which quality, which level of quality of land may they take for their debt? So the mission says, Hanizokin, a debt which comes from damages. If somebody damaged someone else's property, so he owes him money, and he hasn't got any money, so he has to pay in land. If he comes to pay in land, then Shomin Lohenbo Idis, we measure for them using the best quality land. And the truth is, this is explicit in the Torah. The Torah says, Meitav Sadehu, Meitav Karmei Shalem, his best field and the best of his vineyard he has to pay. But the Mishnah is bringing this in order to discuss the idea of Tikkun Oilam. So the Gemara explains in one of two ways. Either Midoraisa, it's based on the best quality field of the person who was damaged, the person whose property was damaged. The best type of field that she has, to the equivalent of that, the one who did the damage would be obligated to pay. However, because of Tikkun Oilam, they said that if you have a field which is even better quality than that, then you have to pay that. So that's where the Tikkun Oilam comes into it. Alternatively, very similar, but even that is Midoraisa. It could be that even Midoraisa you have to pay from your best field, even if it's better than the one who was damaged's best field. And the reason why it's called Tikkun Oilam is because that's how we're understanding the Pasuk. When the Torah says you have to pay from the best field, without the understanding of Tikkun Oilam, so you would have said it means the best field of the person who was damaged. And if you happen to have an even better field, then you don't, you're not obligated to pay that. However, because of this idea of Tikkun Oilam, which in this case means that we're concerned that somebody will be willing to damage if it's not so severe, the punishment, but if we say that he has to pay more with a better quality field, then he'll be much more careful not to damage. Be as it may, that logic leads us to explain the Pasuk to require one to pay the best of his field. So two very similar ways of understanding. The question is though, is the fact that you have to pay from your own field, the the best of your own field, even if it is better than the best field of the one who was damaged, is that Midrabonon or Midoraisa? But either way, it's because of Tikkun Oilam. Alright, Ubalchoiv, a regular person who is owed money because he lent someone else, so the borrower owes him money. Ubalchoiv refers to the one who is the lender, who is owed money. Babinanis, he can collect from the average quality field. Midoraisa, he only has the right to collect from the worst quality field. However, Midrabonin, in order to encourage people to lend money, they said that they'll be able to collect from the average quality field. Otherwise, they might be concerned that I'm going to lend money and he'll end up giving me a very bad quality field. So I don't want to lend the money, and therefore the Rabbonin said that no, you'll be able to collect it from the average quality field. And the third level is a chsubas isha, a woman's kasuba, baziburis, she can only collect that from the worst quality fields. Over here, there's no reason to make any tikkun oilam. We don't need to encourage her to get married. A woman wants to get married. And therefore, it remains like the Midoraisa Din, that she's only entitled to collect from the worst quality fields of her husband. However, Meir Meir says, 
even a kasuba of a woman can be collected from the average level field, because at the end of the day, a woman is a type of balchayv, a woman who, uh, someone who has owed money. And according to Mary, we don't start differentiating between this specific case. It might be that the reason doesn't apply in this case. But at the end of the day, she's also considered to be a balchayv, very similar, and therefore, she is also able to collect from an average quality field. Mr. Bates, the halacha is that once somebody owes someone else money, if after the time begins that he owes the money, he sells one of his fields to somebody else. If he ends up not being able to pay from other land or other money, then the person who is owed money is able to collect the debt from the buyer. He can collect that land. And then the person who paid money for the land, he might be able to get the money back and the borrower would owe him the money. He would have to compensate him. However, concerning the land, the person who is owed money is able to collect that land even once it has been sold. But this Mishnah tells us that from the person who is owed money cannot collect from which refers to property which has already been sold, but that he has a sort of hold on it. In a case where there are also where there's also property which is free meaning it has not yet been sold, available. Even if the property which he still has remaining with him is bad quality. So you could have somebody, um, somebody's property was damaged, so he's really entitled to the best quality fields. But meanwhile, the person who owes him the money sold his best quality field to somebody else, and he's left with a bad quality field. In this case, the person whose property was damaged can only receive it from the bad quality field, since the better quality field has been sold. It's true that he has the rights even to those property, but that's only in a case where we're forced to do that. And the Gemara says this is also because of Tikkun Oilam, that the buyers shouldn't lose out, even though the Torah says that the person who was damaged has rights to the best quality field. Alright, and the Mishnah ends off, one cannot collect a debt from the property of orphans, except for from the worst quality land. Meaning, if, let's say, Ruvain borrowed money from Shimon, and then Ruvain died, so Shimon is not collecting the debt from Ruvain, he's collecting it from Ruvain's children. In that case, he can only collect it from the worst quality fields, and one reason for this is because the whole point of the Tikkun Oilam in order to receive a better quality field is to encourage people to lend or make sure that people are more careful not to damage other people's property. Now, people don't assume that the person who owes the money, for example, the borrower, is going to die. They don't think of that. And therefore, if the law will be different in case where they die, that's not going to affect them. So there's no reason to say that they'll get a better quality field in a case where the borrower ends up dying. So we leave it with the regular original law that they can collect from the lower quality fields only. According to others, this is also part of Tikkun Oilam, that since they are orphans, and they themselves didn't cause the obligation and the debt, so we're more lenient on them, and they don't owe as much. That is also in itself part of the Tikkun Oilam.